welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today. Chinese modern history, starting from 1839, going up to the present. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is kind of a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. The usual beginning announcements. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can join the substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com. Or I'd love to hear from you at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. I need to work on actually putting stuff on the substack. So I'd be very curious what you'd like to hear about. So, this episode is where we're going to finally get on to the real meat of what we're going to be talking about. This is the off-ramp, really. Last week we talked about how Charles Eliot, the superintendent for British trade, uh, tried to deal with the ultimatum by Lian Zexu, about turning in stocks of opium. He issued unauthorized IOUs for unimaginable sums of money to opium dealers. And today we deal with how that got dealt with. To demonstrate why internal politics are as much a reason for anything as anything, uh, we look at the British response. And we're going to look at the Opium War. We're going to brush over the Opium War and look at impressions China and the Chinese people are going to have to deal with. And we're going to look a little bit at the uh, treaties resulting from the Opium War, some of their highlights. Today, and I believe for the last episode, we are still drawing heavily from Imperial Twilight by Stephen Platt. I highly, highly recommend that book. So many very, very interesting human stories. Uh, but it, you know, like a lot of it is about Britain and about British parliamentary wrangling uh, in and around a lot of all this. Uh, but it doesn't come into our narrative. So I commend it to you for your reading pleasure. Uh, an interesting calculation I just found out here. Uh, when the British and the Chinese were negotiating the surrender of opium, the Hong family that had the monopoly on trade advised that turning over a thousand chests of opium would be enough. It'd be more than all that had ever been found in any previous bust uh, all the opium busts combined didn't come close to a thousand. The Hong family could kind of cover the costs, pay back their business partners. Uh, Lin could declare victory and go home. And just as a, a business tip, if you're ever going to go to Asia on a business trip, Listen very carefully to your local partners if they are taking the initiative and having, and bringing a solution for all your problems that doesn't involve too much dirty dealing. Yeah, something still could go wrong, but it's a strong option to consider. 
because they know the local environment and you don't. Be careful about being made to rely too much on one guy. See, the, the Hong family actually had a monopoly on this trade, and as we're going to see, their monopoly is going to end. But at the time, the situation wasn't as extreme as Charles Eliot thought it was. But we'll get there. Charles Eliot promised to turn over 20,000 chests of opium. Like that, that's, that is an unimaginable amount of opium. I don't know how big one of these chests is, but 20,000 is a lot. Lian Zexu had told the emperor that all foreigners were cunning and treacherous. And, you know, in his communication with the emperor, he says, at least the Elliot guy, you know, he, he's complying immediately, not calling in gunboats like the, like the, the Napier guy we used to have to deal with, you know, and, uh, Lin was going on about how they had been cowed by imperial power and authority, um, and he advised showing forgiveness and generosity and Lien himself sent livestock into the foreign compound in Canton because he figured they'd be running short of food. He advised the emperor to reimburse the foreigners at least a bit for their losses, maybe a few pounds of tea for each chest handed over. Well, part of the problem was going to be that most of the opium was dispersed to various safe places around Asia, Singapore, Manila, other ports not in China. And uh, at this point, okay, so one of the things you'll find in your own life is after you give in after a period of terror, you find yourself getting very angry. Well, this is where Charles Eliot was. He had signed everything over, and he was trying to comply with the law, with local Chinese authority, all that. His personal honor was on the line, securing the solution to the problem. Uh, he had wrangled with his own people, traders in Canton, wrangled with his own government, with missives back and forth to London. And Lin wouldn't let them leave Canton until 75% of the opium was handed in. And this would take weeks to months to get done. It lasted six weeks in the end. Uh, Chinese uh, talk about saving face and losing face. Well, in this case, imagine a British aristocrat with, wound, with a wounded personal sense of honor. You know, he had helped the Qing drive opium smugglers out of a place called Wampoa near Canton, a, a, a famous military academy. He's going to be there later. Um, he, so he was accused by local English press of serving Chinese over his own people. He did what he could to keep local traders in line, even though he was given little specific authority from the British government. He tried to be respectful toward Qing officials, and he didn't act like Napier before him. You know, he was trying to be a nice guy, reasonable, listen to the you know, local officials, give them due respect. Well, here's how the British found out about what happened. Char well, Charles Eliot, of course, wrote his own official dispatch back to the government. Um, and accord and so quoting uh, Stephen Platt directly here, the letter was so vicious and direct that most of it would be redacted before it was ever shared with Parliament. Uh, 
I don't. I can imagine some things you'd have to write because I've written such things myself in uh, customer service things, especially like in dealing with tax software that is not working while I'm in China, kind of thing. Uh, anyway, um, so the uh, he called for naval retaliation, seizing an island off the coast, blockades, demand for punishment of Deng Tingzhen and Lian Zexu. Uh, Governor of Guangdong and the Imperial Commissioner, respectively. Uh, the British government found out about it through merchant companies. You know, you're a guy on, so they're writing back just a flood of letters, a flood of letters just coming in. Your guy on the spot promised you'd pay us back in full. Letters just pouring in, demanding payment. You know, it wasn't even about how they'd be protected. It was about how they were going to get paid back. A lot of these companies knew that they didn't necessarily have a legal leg to stand on. But lobbyists working for multinational companies is not new. It's they were trying to see because they could harangue the British government, whereas they had nothing with the Chinese government, there was, n they had no angle on them. They had no, nothing. They had nothing on them. So they were pushing who they could push around. There were stories of suicides by traders from India, afraid of financial ruin. So, you know, you can see the rich upper class Indians, they could buy their way into the trading system as well. It's an interesting side note. Uh, the legal trade, uh, was also stopped and you know british manufacturers were pressuring the government for action to get trade moving again they wanted a treaty with china to keep this sort of thing from happening again and maybe that was going to happen by force so the government was under pressure and there are a few figures i'm not bringing in just to simplify the narrative here the government was under pressure from multiple directions to get a solution now uh, I actually wrote in the notes, all capital, now, 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 uh, in, you know, the, from the British political sitcom, Yes Minister, or maybe Yes Prime Minister, uh, diplomacy is about surviving until the next century, politics is about surviving until the, n until next week. So uh, trade was the jugular vein of Britain. It is government revenue, contributions to politicians, the foundation of military preservation of British independence. You know, many of the crises of, of uh, British history are about where the money is going to come from. The monarchy of England was ended for, the, for a period because the king was fiddling with how to get enough money to do what he wanted to do. Uh, the, the government had no money to pay back opium traders. They had just finished making payments to former slave owners, uh, and this was 20 million pounds in, uh, just going to say 1840, uh, and the opium payments promised by Charles Eliot, unauthorized, was two million pounds. So they, and they were still paying back debts from the Napoleonic Wars, uh, which were about 1800 to 1815. 
and a uh, little note from the McCartney expedition that a few ships might do an effective blockade, blow up a few things, put some pressure on the Chinese government. This is a uh, a card that the British government held, you know, on, you know, in you know, up their sleeves. That it wasn't the first thing they wanted to do, but here was here was an emergency, political emergency, and so a fleet ultimately was sent to show the Chinese that they meant business. Uh, back on the ground uh, on the Chinese coast, uh, July eighteen thirty nine, drunkish British sailors kill a Chinese villager, Charles Elliot, with all the traders pulled out of Canton uh, into uh, Macau. He had nothing left to lose, and he refused to hand them over for trial. But then Lian Zexu, emboldened by his recent easy victory, he kept pressing his demands, and he also just received new instructions from Beijing to execute foreigners who sold opium. So, I mean, he's riding high. And so, you know, Elliot has nothing left to lose, and Lin has... You know, he he thinks that he's he's winning. He's not seeing the the he, he's not ready for the other shoe to drop uh, with the uh, wounded pride of a British aristocrat. Then uh, the the Chinese started turning up pressure on Macau. There was a Chinese naval blockade. Actions taken against the British. Um, some of it quite nasty. Um, the you know, so Elliot had all the British and all their families who threw out a Hong Kong island, and Lin ordered you know, villagers nearby to arm to repel British attempts to gather fresh supplies, food, water, etc. And these uh, three ships under Elliot's command fought, you know, Chinese naval ships to a stalemate, and so this was kind of the de facto first battle of the war. And so, you know, the summary of what the Opium War was, it, it wasn't the war on drugs, it wasn't a war for drugs, it wasn't even a war about drugs, it was a war because drugs. It wasn't, you know, so in the British Parliament, the, the pivotal voice, George Staunton, uh, an interesting character in his own right, I, he he's... Uh, he actually used a few words in Chinese as a child, uh, speaking to, I think it was the Emperor Tianlong, uh, Q-I-A-N-L-O-N-G. Uh, he's a very interesting character. Uh, he kind of sums up what caused Britain to go into the Opium War, and he, he a lot of the points he was making in his in the one speech that anybody was happy to listen to when he was in Parliament. He said he was not supporting the opium trade. He said Charles Elliot did have the power to order traders to hand over their opium and promise repayment. Uh, Lin's actions were provocations that could not go unanswered. British power in India relied on the, the continued appearance of strength, prestige, and honor. And the only way to end the opium trade was for the British and Chinese governments to work together, you know, the weird reasoning. That meant a treaty, and that meant war with China was the only thing that could bring China to terms on making direct diplomatic connections. So you have to beat them in order to befriend them somehow? Anyway, 
So reluctantly, war with China to preserve the British image and uh, and British prestige. And we're talking about winning over the vital margin in Parliament to give support to the war. So this was a highly contentious issue, and public sentiment was largely against the war with China. It was like a lot of the, the, the core of people pushing for war were the people who had investments tied up in the opium trade, and then you win over crucial margins with you know appealing to patriotism and things like this it, like it, it was a serious discussion it's it it's it's not like it was just i mean even even the most crass imperial stuff there's some reason somewhere why maybe it might be a good idea but still you know you shouldn't do it anyway the uh, the opium the story of the opium war is really very interesting, but it isn't the story we're focusing on here. So here in just a few minutes, we're going to dispose of the opium war. From the British side, uh, the Whig party in power to start the war was chastised for letting it go on too long, rather than for starting it at all. The uh, conservatives who came to power next were praised for ending it, for winning it. It's a little like the Democrats taking a beating in American elections for carrying on the Vietnam War, and President Nixon and the Republicans winning political points for ending it. Except, of course, the British won the Opium War, and Vietnam is marked as an American loss. L lots of troops, uh, Indian and British, were dying of disease not not so much from combat they they were winning so handily that just that the uh the the british and indian soldiers participating in the campaigns were basically committing atrocities because they they would kill and kill and kill and the chinese just wouldn't surrender it it you know, so that that's that that's that's one thing if you ever find yourself in the position of having to fight China, don't carry it on, just, you know, like, just, just, just don't, just, China doesn't give up, they never give up, if you're, you know, if you're fighting in China, you know, the, the Japanese tried, and God, whole generations of Chinese, of Japanese died trying to win their, um, China will not roll over. China will not give up. Um, anyway, this isn't a, an advertisement for Chinese resistance capacities. Uh, the war ended when the British sailed up the Yangtze and threatened to destroy the city of Nanjing, the alternative capital, uh, kind of a, hist you know, a historical capital, uh, you know, Beijing, a north capital, Nanjing, the south capital. The so what the Chinese saw. Their critical transportation routes for trade were down rivers and along the coast. The Royal Navy could threaten any and all of that, and as we'll see in the Second Opium War, which will come in near the end of the Taiping Rebellion. 
you know, again, it's foreign naval power that is going to really run right over the the Chinese military. Uh, the British brought an ironclad warship, didn't take any damage from Chinese cannons. In one place, they they found that the the best cannon was cast in like eight in sixteen o one, and this is like eighteen forty over 200 years old. Okay, great, thanks. Uh, modern naval artillery, and this time it's in use against China. Like All the time you have, uh, you know, Chinese are writing about, like, like wow, these, these foreigners seem to have some really, really advanced naval stuff. Uh, the Even at the end of the 1700s, the, the British Navy was was perceptibly superior even to to the French who were their closest peers uh, they they really like they had huge guns up on the deck of this ship and they with advanced metallurgical capabilities they were able to put much more firepower into lighter guns and uh all the after all the Napoleonic Wars and the uh, the British blockading Europe, uh, keeping French trade in, they they really had been working on their naval game, and they, you know so so they, they average Chinese got to see this. And we're going to see this in the story next week of the beginning of the Taiping Rebellion. That one of the things that Hong Xiuquan saw or that he heard about was what modern British naval weapons did to Chinese ships and forts and things. The war split open, already threatened divisions in the empire, Han against the dominating Manchus, uh, the merchants against officials, you know, so it's like, do we bring in opium, do we trade, do we not, what do we do? Militia soldiers ostensibly there to protect the locals, but they were predatory against locals. Um, the Chinese military, uh, suffering from budget cuts and inaccurate information, going back to headquarters, you know, going back to the emperor in Beijing. Chinese commanders claimed victories far in excess of what happened. They would you know, claim things that never even happened. Um, the emperor didn't think it was worthwhile going all out to defeat the British, so the conflict remained on the coast you know, where the British strength was. Had they drawn the British inland, the Chinese could have inflicted greater damage. Uh, Stephen Platt uh, references contemporary huge British defeats in Afghanistan. So the you know, the, the the British would would win where they could you know, control the coast. They would win through you know, build up of treaties and agreements and things. They their land forces weren't their their uh, superpower. It was the navy. So. In August 29, 1842, they signed, the British signed the Treaty of Nanjing. This was the first of many unequal treaties with China. They got a $21 million indemnity to cover the cost of the war and reimburse 
the destroyed oat uh, reimburse the uh, opium traders for the uh, lost opium, but they did not legalize the opium trade. Um, William Jardine, one of the uh, one of the guys who suggested the terms uh, to fight for, actually recommended against legalizing opium. And part of the reason was that his money came from his smuggling network. So, like, yes, that is super sleazy. So, yeah, okay, you should you should reimburse these traders, but no, 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 don't don't legalize opium because I'm making buckets of money smuggling it. Ah, okay, great. Britain got Hong Kong as a permanent colony, and part of when Britain handed Hong Kong back to China, Hong Kong Island was theoretically a permanent possession of the British, but they had leased additional areas on the Chinese coast uh, that were vital to the running of Hong Kong as a territory, and so they just decided to give the whole thing back rather than keep what was technically theirs in perpetuity. Um, the This treaty ended the monopoly of the Hong merchants at Canton, so you know, earlier when they were advocating for a settlement with Lian Zexu, uh, they had everything nailed down just the way they wanted it, so they had a lot to lose if things went the way that they in fact did. That's part of why they're willing to give up a lot of money, so that they can put on a show of surrendering a thousand chests of, o chests of opium to Commissioner Lin when he's there to uh, chew bubblegum and kick ass, and he, had, uh, and he didn't even bring any bubblegum. So they uh, opened five treaty ports, including Shanghai, which soon outclassed Canton as a trading city. Uh, extraterritoriality, foreigners were subject to foreign laws and not Chinese laws on Chinese soil. So this, the conditions of this trade are going to be foundational for relations uh, between foreigners and China until about 1949. This, re this represented the end of Chinese homeostasis, like China does what China wants because that's what China feels like doing, until about 1949. Uh, foreigners of all stripes were going to play a vital role in the incompleteness of Chinese revolutions until 1949. You know, some outside power is going to you know, have a deciding factor in whatever the Chinese government is going to do so China is going to keep trying to figure out how to go its own way, but the foreign powers are going to interfere a lot. We're going to see that. It's it's going to be a running gag in this story. Um, as after the British got their concessions, other European powers and the United States of America jumped in to, to get similar trading rights. Uh, additional openings for Protestant missionaries. Uh, be, this is before the Second Opium War, they could only go to coastal cities of China. So when the, the five areas were opened and Hong Kong was opened, uh, Protestant missionaries set up shop in earnest and started working in the coastal cities where they were allowed. Uh, and so let I'd just like to give you the end of the story for some of the stars of our recent episodes here. Charles Elliott was one of the initial negotiators for the settlement with China, but he was fired for not pressing hard enough. Uh, when he 
you know, for what he was told to demand from the Chinese. Uh, 1842, he went to the Republic of Texas as charge d'affaires. Uh, it's basically like the ambassador without being the ambassador. And he was consul general, and he stayed there until 1846. Was that when Texas was annexed by by the United States anyway. He was governor of Bermuda from 1846 to 1854, uh, did some other governorships of Atlantic Islands, and he died in England in, in 1875. So he had a pretty eventful career. He was governor of various places. Uh, commissioner Lin, uh, Lin Zexu, he was scapegoated for provoking the British military action. In 1840, he was sent to very far western China, Xinjiang, uh, in exile. He was rehabilitated later in 1845. He was appointed to be governor general of Shanxi and Gansu. In 1847, he was governor general of Yunnan and Guizhou. I love Yunnan and Guizhou. I've very, very much enjoyed the time that I've spent there. But anyway, he was sent there as, um, as governor. He died in 1850 on his way to help put down the Taiping Rebellion in uh, Guangxi. Uh, and today he's a figure in China uh, famous for resisting imperialism. There's a statue of him in Chatham Square in, Manha in the Manhattan Chinatown. Uh, it, and the inscription under his statue is Pioneer in the War Against Drugs. And he, there's a wax statue of him in Madame Tussauds uh, in London. So... Here is where the where China cracks open for revolution to work its way in. And I am not going to spend any more time on uh, precursor episodes next week. This is it. With no more ado, we introduce Hong Xiuquan, the founder of the Taiping Movement. And this is where we get started with Chinese revolutions. As always, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. There's also chineserevolutions.substack.com and chineserevolutions at gmail.com. This again has been Nathan Bennett, and I look forward to seeing the stats go up uh, when you listen to next week's episode. Bye for now. <laughs>